Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show. But if you go to war, you go in with overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans. Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Welcome to Thank You For Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the office of the Secretary of Defense. And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service. In 2017, the famous documentary filmmakers Ken Burns and Lynn Novak released their 18-hour project on the American war in Vietnam. Most everyone in the national security field watched at least part of it. I watched my Twitter feed at the same time. And one tweet from former Army officer Dr. Jason Dempsey hit me in the gut. I'm behind a couple of episodes, Dempsey wrote, but so far this Ken Burns documentary on Afghanistan is spot on. Almost three years later, while we were doing interviews for our episode on the post-9-11 wars, Mark Harlan told us something that echoed Dempsey. It was really striking to realize in the hundred or so interviews, overwhelmingly current and retired senior military leaders, they did not expect the Vietnam War to be cited so often among them, and that's probably its its own tale. That is its own tale. And in this first part of a two-part series, Alice and I are going to take a look at what it may have to tell us. The American History of Vietnamistan, today on Thank You For Your Service. Almost immediately after the American invasion of Afghanistan in October of 2001, people started to wonder if we were getting ourselves into another Vietnam. This evening, I came here to speak to you about Vietnam. I do not have to tell you that our people are profoundly concerned about that struggle. There are passionate convictions about the wisest course for our nation to follow. There are many sincere and patriotic Americans who harbor doubts about sustaining the commitment that three presidents and a half a million of our young men have made. Given the nature and reach of our enemies, we will win this conflict by the patient accumulation of successes, by meeting a series of challenges with determination and will and purpose. Today we focus on Afghanistan, but the battle is broader. As I have said before, in evaluating the enemy strategy, it is evident to me that he believes our Achilles heel is our resolve. Your continued strong support is vital to the success of our mission. This review is now complete. And as commander in chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 US troops to Afghanistan. And let us be proud of those who sacrificed, who gave their lives, so that the people of South Vietnam might live in freedom, and so that the world might live in peace. My original instinct 
was to pull out. And historically, I like following my instincts. But all my life, I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. In a lot of ways, the two wars are very different. For one thing, the scale of the conflicts and the casualty rates on the U.S. side diverge drastically. We have lost more than 2,450 service members in Afghanistan, though some reports suggest about the same number of civilian contractors have also been killed. In Vietnam, more than 58,000 American military personnel were killed. In fact, for five years straight, from 1966 to 1970, more than 6,000 U.S. troops died each year in Vietnam, peaking at nearly 17,000 deaths in 1968. According to Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, the total number of U.S. troops even deployed to Afghanistan will be less than 5,000 later this year. We fought in Vietnam with a draft army, an all-volunteer force is in Afghanistan. And the two countries themselves are very different, from their geography to their cultures and histories. Still, the similarities are hard to miss. In particular, there's the longevity of the wars, the defeat of other major powers prior to our own involvement, the existence of a safe haven in a neighboring country, our concern about our credibility if we give in, our fear that walking away will encourage an international menace to spread. In the October 31st, 2001 issue of the New York Times, R.W. Apple wrote a piece considering the potential parallels between Vietnam and Afghanistan. Could Afghanistan become another Vietnam, he wrote? Is the United States facing another stalemate on the other side of the world? Premature the questions may be, three weeks after the fighting began. Unreasonable, they are not, given the scars scoured into the national psyche by defeat in Southeast Asia. Eight years later, the government's own Voice of America explored what some of the parallels could be. The biggest similarity is in the issue of sanctuaries. The Taliban flee across the border into Pakistan, where U.S. troops cannot pursue them. Pakistan's efforts to clear them out have been ineffective, analysts say. President Obama cannot invade Pakistan for diplomatic and political reasons, but he has continued unmanned drone attacks on Taliban hideouts. Viet Cong fighters in the 60s and 70s took refuge and ran supplies from Cambodia and Laos into Vietnam. President Nixon bombed the border areas and invaded Cambodia in a bid to clean out the sanctuaries. Retired Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 2009, told us that the Obama administration itself was drawing parallels between Vietnam and the wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan. There was a book, I think it was McGeorge Bundy's book, which was Lessons in Disaster, which Rahm Emanuel started to pass out over at the White House. He's the president's chief of staff. It was very clear they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to start any more wars and they wanted to figure out a way to get out of these. If you Google Vietnam and Afghanistan today, you'll find no end of think pieces written in just the past two years comparing the conflicts. CSIS's own Anthony Cordesman wrote a commentary in January of 2019 under the title Afghanistan as Vietnam Redux. Time magazine ran a piece in May of 2019 titled Peace with Honor what Vietnam can teach us about how to leave Afghanistan. Fred Kagan with the American Enterprise Institute wrote a blog post this past December called Afghanistan is not Vietnam. That latter piece was part of a renewed debate comparing the two conflicts. And that debate was ignited by an investigative series published in the Washington Post called The Afghanistan Papers. The title was a kind of homage 
to the Pentagon Papers, the DOD's official classified history of the Vietnam War that a man named Daniel Ellsberg leaked to the New York Times and then to the Post in 1971. They contained explosive evidence that senior DOD leadership had been misleading the public for years about Vietnam. The Afghanistan Papers are a collection of interviews with officials who participated in the policymaking and execution of the war in South Asia. The interviews were conducted by the staff of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR. Their purpose was to determine why victory, or at least a conclusive outcome, has been so elusive. The post-analysis concluded that Afghanistan is a quagmire. And for a few days, official Washington convulsed, writing op-eds, arguing on social media and private email listservs. But it all subsided when we realized no one but us seemed to care. The coverage hadn't really resonated with the American people. Although public support for the Vietnam War had plummeted before the release of the Pentagon Papers, they still had a lasting cultural relevance in the anti-war climate of the early 1970s. David Joy, a history professor at West Point, wrote on the Lawfare blog, In contrast to the white-hot issue of the Vietnam War, especially on college campuses where widespread anti-war marches and protests were the norm, Most Americans seem to have lost interest in what happens in Afghanistan. But if Afghanistan and revelations about it don't affect Americans the way Vietnam did, maybe the two really are different. I have to say, I've never particularly liked the direct comparison of the two wars. I honestly think military and civilian leaders, at least since 2010 or so, have adopted a strategy designed to keep troop numbers and casualties low on purpose so that it doesn't resonate with the American people. In other words, go small, but go long. To find out more, we reached out to someone who has thought a lot about the Vietnam War. So do you think that there are parallels between our experience in Afghanistan and our experience in Vietnam? Yes, with a big caveat, right? As a historian, I always get uncomfortable when we do comparative histories, right? But there are, I think, perspectives to begin. That voice belongs to historian Greg Dattis. Dr. Dattis is the USS Midway Chair in Modern U.S. Military History at San Diego State University and a Vietnam War historian. We asked him why he thinks the Vietnam War is so often invoked when we talk about Afghanistan. You know, to me, I think what it suggests is that this trauma of the American war in Vietnam has rippled throughout time, 50 years on. And it's really fascinating that it's done that. And to me, I think it's... It continues to resonate in large part because this is the first time in the post-World War II era where the United States is confronted with the limits of its own power. Pretty soon into our conversation with Greg, we got into one of the biggest debates among civil-military relations scholars about the war in Vietnam. And that is, how much blame do the Joint Chiefs of Staff deserve for the outcomes of the war? Greg referenced the famous argument by H.R. McMaster that the military chiefs of staff were five silent men during the Lyndon Johnson administration. In that blog to his book, Dereliction of Duty, McMaster writes, they failed to confront the president with their objections to McNamara's approach to the war. General McMaster, of course, went on to become President Trump's national security advisor. He spent most of his own time in the post-9-11 wars in Iraq, but he also worked as a strategist at CENTCOM, and led a task force on corruption in Afghanistan. Although he was never Army Chief of Staff, in some sense, he was living the kind of situations he had written about in Dereliction of Duty. 
People debate whether McMaster really argued that the chief should have forced their views on intransigent civilian leaders. Whether in civil lingo, McMaster actually disputes the principle that civilians have the right to be wrong. But in my view, McMaster was simply saying that the chiefs should have been more candid and clear in expressing their views to civilian leaders. Regardless, the book has become kind of a lightning rod for the debate over whether and how much civilian leaders should defer to military judgment. That push and pull happened all over again in Afghanistan. Arguably, military advisors were better integrated into policymaking this time around. In Vietnam, McMaster argues, the chiefs were, quote, unable to develop a strategic alternative, unquote, to what civilian leaders in the Johnson administration were pushing, particularly Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. But data sees it differently. I think there's some great perspective to be gained by looking at the dialogue between civilian policymakers and senior military leaders about what was possible at the time. You know, there is there's a strand out there that um, that I don't agree with, you know, that that military officers were derelict in their duty and weren't advising the president. And I understand that argument, but I, I don't really agree with that. I think there was a clear-sighted understanding of the difficulties that were ahead of them in Vietnam, speaking of the senior military officers. And yet there's still, there was a continuing push to move forward, almost just to kind of put your head down and struggle through. And I don't think there was enough honest dialogue between those policymakers and military leaders like Westmoreland or Abrams who were actually going to implement strategy about what was really possible in this type of environment. You know, so from my perspective, as I looked at William Westmoreland, my sense is that he crafted a fairly comprehensive strategy in Vietnam, that the, the standard literature is one of the Americans are just seeking to kill the enemy, rack up body counts, and, and they'll win the war through uh, military attrition. And my sense is very different, that those military leaders like Westmoreland understood the political context of the war. They understood the importance of trying to manage military operations at the same time they're trying to manage all the civic operations and pacification efforts. The problem is, I, I think that there just wasn't enough honest discussion about the possibility that the implementation of that strategy was not going to achieve what it could achieve, that there was a, a reticence to say that we can't make this happen. And uh, I think that's really important for us today. I think, you know, we, we should ask ourselves why after decade and decade, we're still in Afghanistan and, and still making the same arguments that of if only, if only we had a better commander, if only we had some more resources, if only, you know, fill in the blank, we'll, we'll achieve what we need to achieve. And, you know, as, as kind of silly as that Brad Pitt movie, War Machine, seemed to be on its face, I, I think it actually says a lot, right? That this kind of revolving door of, of officers who believe that everybody before them wasn't quite doing it right and we just need a better strategy and a better commander and more resources and we'll be able to achieve what we want to achieve. I, I think that it was a pretty telling commentary on the last decade or so of our um, military operations overseas. And I, I think again, has some, some history behind that with the American experience in Vietnam. So is that what happened in Afghanistan? Did civilian and military leaders mismanage their communications over strategy? One thing that's been observed so often that it's almost a cliche at this point is the turnover in officials working on Afghanistan policy. Even Greg said it, the revolving door of officers. Presidents Bush, Obama, and Trump have all presided over the war in South Asia. That's already three different strategic leaders. But below that level, 
there have been scores of people, secretaries of state and defense, national security advisors, ambassadors, CENTCOM commanders, commanders of the International Security Assistance Force and the Resolute Support Mission, commanders of Joint Special Operations Command, even action officers and brigade commanders. Powell, Rice, Rumsfeld, Gates, Panetta, Hagel, Carter, Hadley, McNeil, McKiernan, McChrystal, Petraeus, Allen, Dunford, Nicholson, Holbrook. And that's just the executive branch. Four chairmen of the Senate Armed Services Committee, six chairmen of the HASC, from the 106th to the 116th Congresses. Committee will come to order. Today, the committee receives testimony from the president's senior advisors on his strategy in Afghanistan and Pakistan. General, in your opinion, do the conditions on the ground warrant a change to the current plan for the drawdown of U.S. troops in Afghanistan? Afghanistan has been the forgotten war. Opportunities have been squandered, and now we're clearly seeing the effects. With that many people coming and going, it's hard to learn lessons or build up institutional memory. And it's also a natural experiment with how much personality and personal relationships affect policy. I, I will say that I do think, you know, leadership matters, right? If you want your intelligence officers to answer questions that aren't just about how many bad guys there are, the only way to do that is to have a multi-star general ask different questions. I believe that in my bones at this point, having watched you know, 2007, 2010, 2013, and 2017, um, and doing different projects with different agencies at different points in those times and watching the way that, you know, what they thought was cool and what they were sort of focused on and where their guidance was. This is counterinsurgency expert, Dr. Aaron Simpson. There was a lot of frustration with the Karzai government, but I don't think either the American civilians nor the American military had real great ideas on how to deal with the Karzai government. Probably the most interesting actor in some ways and the one that's least explored was the role CIA played in all of this, because they definitely had their own agenda, had their own resources, had their own relationships. Dr. Simpson was a civilian contractor in Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010. She was selected by David Kilcullen, himself a counterinsurgency expert, who'd advised General David Petraeus in Iraq. Also, Aaron is one of the hosts of the Fantastic Bombshell podcast at War on the Rocks. But there was a real difference in, in cultural understanding and internalization, both from recent fights and longer history about what it meant to protect the population. And the Brits and the Marines had fundamentally different ideas about how to do that. And, you know, that... I could see both of that. I could see them talking past each other. I could see them talking past each other on purpose. You know, the Brits thought the Marines were cowboys. The Marines thought the Brits were losers. They hadn't even met the special operators yet. <laughs> no, exactly. Right. But it was definitely, um, they didn't have a lot of time for each other. And it was to the detriment of a lot of the efforts that went on there in the South in a, in a pretty critical period. Erin's memory of her time in Afghanistan is encyclopedic. Even so, she hit on something that struck me as an important parallel for Vietnam. When you're working on a conflict that is so complicated, it is very hard to see it, to really perceive what's even going on. It's like the number one question. You know, how do you take all of those disparate actions, how do you take all that disparate data and build a meaningful, integrated picture. But I remember when I was in 
Helmand province, which is right around Marja. And one of my primary tasks was basically to do this center of gravity analysis and try to link the very real gains that were being made in Helmand to the broader campaign, right? So why does it matter what we're doing in, in Nawa and in Garmsir? How does that matter to Kandahar and the broader effort to push back the Taliban and exert control in the South and Southeast? I'm very good at counterinsurgency things. And I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I grinded and I grinded and I emailed and I talked to people and I like worked with all of these different, you know, ways of trying to put, you know, I had so many diagrams, you know, in, in my notebook and I couldn't make it matter. And it killed me because the gains were real. The sacrifices were real. Erin was working at the broad analytical level, but those sacrifices she's talking about, those were tactical. When Alice and I started talking about this show, I knew we needed to call retired General Barry McCaffrey. General McCaffrey was one of the most decorated soldiers in Vietnam, and he received three Purple Heart medals for serious injuries sustained in combat. He also led the famed left hook attack in Desert Storm and retired as commander of U.S. Southern Command. I thought maybe his perspectives fighting in Vietnam could give us some perspective on Afghanistan. I, my company, B Company 2nd and 7th Cavs, 68, 69, we're all together. We just lost our first sergeant. We have biannual meetings at the wall for three days, and they have meetings at the lake every summer. But they were a bunch of 18-year-old boys. They had 90 days, 180 days in the Army when they got off a helicopter in my company. The staff sergeants were instant NCOs. We had, I think, eight battalions of NCO Academy at Fort Benning. The officers were all two years, three years of college draftees who were, for a third year uh, of service, were, would end up commissioned. They were great soldiers. We're all still together. But if you go to an infantry battalion serving in the Hindu Kush of Afghanistan <laughs> and, and see the staff sergeants up there and the captains, they are just immeasurably more mature and better trained. And many of them are on their third combat tour, their 12th combat tour. General McCaffrey isn't the only one to make this observation. The U.S. military today is a professional all-volunteer force with the best training and certainly the biggest budget in the world. So why is victory in Afghanistan as elusive as it was in Vietnam? Vietnam, finally, the the political leadership of the country got isolated from the American people. I tell people, my take on Vietnam was, we didn't get out because the American people said we're sick of taking casualties. We got out because the American people said these political uh, leaders don't know what they're doing. They're grinding up our boys to no avail. And they were. Same thing's happening in in Afghanistan. It makes absolutely no sense for five years now. What are your goals? What are your objectives? How are you applying military and other forms of power to achieve them? We weren't. We aren't. But if we pull out, it's going to go back to total civil war. Well, nobody can pull a plug on it. We should note that earlier this year, on February 29th, the U.S. signed a political agreement with the Taliban intended to decrease violence, reduce U.S. troop levels, protect U.S. interests with respect to counterterrorism, and initiate peace talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Progress has been slow, and many analysts believe that both the Afghan government and the Taliban are trying to stall, each believing that time is on their side. There's a cliche among counterinsurgency theorists. It is that the insurgents win so long as they do not lose, and the counterinsurgents lose so long as they do not win. I don't think it was our conflict to win or lose. 
that at the end of the day, and I've said this often, the Vietnamese war was won over answering a very difficult question, which was, what does it mean to be Vietnamese in the post-colonial modern era? And that's, that question is political and social and cultural and economic, and it is also a Vietnamese question. And I think one of the reasons why the United States didn't accomplish its goals in Vietnam, um, which it didn't, I know some veterans would argue otherwise, but I don't think it did, was because we were trying to help answer a question that, that we could not answer, no foreign force could. And so at the end of the day, the only way that this struggle was going to end was by local peoples answering the question for themselves. What's so crazy about Dada saying that is that President Kennedy said basically the same thing in 1963. I don't think that uh, unless a greater effort is made by the government to win popular support, that the war can be won out there. In the final analysis, it's their war. They're the ones who have to win it or lose it. When a war stretches on for decades, when so many people's lives have been lost or permanently altered, when success is persistently out of reach, it's natural to look to the past for answers. Most historians, like Greg, warn against using history for lessons. But Jim and I are social scientists and practitioners. We look for patterns and hope history can be some kind of guide to the present. History never repeats itself, said Mark Twain, but it often rhymes. And most of us can't help but hear those echoes, especially not the people who lived through it. Look, you know, at the end of the day, it was 59,000 killed, 300,000 wounded. Uh, our, our Naval Academy and West Point classes uh, used to have a every two years event where we'd gather at the Vietnam Memorial, have a joint service, and then we'd go see every killed in action in Arlington National Cemetery. And there were considerable numbers of them. And so it was the event that dominated how we thought about things for the rest of our life. That's our show for today. Stay tuned for our next episode in extended war storytellers about Vietnam and Afghanistan. If you want to learn more about the war in Vietnam, Gregory Dattis has written multiple excellent books and articles. His most recent book, Pulp Vietnam, War and Gender in Cold War Men's Magazines, is the first in a series for Cambridge University Press on the military, war, and society in American history. And you can find him on Twitter, at Gregory Dattis. You should also be downloading the amazing Bombshell podcast immediately after finishing up with us so you can hear more of the brilliant things Aaron Simpson has to say. Or just follow her on Twitter at Charlie underscore Simpson. You can catch Barry McCaffrey on NBC or follow him on Twitter at McCaffreyR3. That's at M-C-C-A-F-F-R-E-Y-R and the numeral three. But you know what? You can also just Google him. You'll get history and biography at the same time. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from our listeners. Follow us on Twitter. We're at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast. And send us an email telling us what you think of the show and what else you'd like us to cover. Our address is T-Y-F-Y-S podcast at gmail.com. Polite notes only, please. Thanks for joining us. See you next time on Thank You for Your Service.